Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the podcast we call Space Nuts. We talk about astronomy and other things. Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always is astronomer from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How, How are, are you? you, sir? Yeah, well, I'm well. I, I, I hope you are as well. I hope you're keeping all your, uh, all yeah. your illnesses under control. <laughs> to quote an old friend of mine, any fitter I'd be up and about. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Don't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, in this episode, we're going to uh, talk about uh, former U.S. astronaut Alan Bean. Um, he passed away a couple of weeks ago, but what an amazing life. And uh, we're going to talk about some of his, um, his uh, career achievements. We're also going to look at lunar eclipses and climate change, two things you don't normally put together. And uh, a question about the test mission, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Somebody's got some thoughts on looking for exoplanets, and uh, a couple of questions have popped up as a result of that. So we will endeavour to answer those questions uh, for um, uh, our avid listener. But uh, first, uh, Fred, let's uh, look at uh, the life and times of astronaut Alan Bean. Yeah, that's right. Uh, a sad story, Andrew, and I, I guess one that... Um, you know, we we comment on fairly regularly when those great heroes of the Apollo era, um, all those years ago, 50 years ago next year, Apollo 11, uh, those great heroes gradually fade away and, and pass away. Mm. Um, so uh, today we're celebrating the life of uh, Alan Bean, who was... The the, actually the fourth man to walk on the moon. He was an astronaut on the Apollo 12 mission. So only the second lunar landing mission, and actually a particularly special one because the, uh, he and his, um, his co-pilot for the module, the lunar module, uh, Pete Conrad, they landed the uh, lunar module within walking distance of a spacecraft called Surveyor 3, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, which um, uh, which had landed on the moon about 18 months earlier. Uh, and they it was uh, Bean and Conrad who famously removed a TV camera from the surveyor lander and brought it back to Earth, uh, whereupon it was discovered to have microbes on it, which has been controversial ever since, yes. that the, whether the microbes survived um, 18 months or whatever it was on the moon's surface or, or, or not. A really interesting stuff. Uh, that that would need a whole space nut session to discuss that because there's a lot to say about it. But anyway, um, Alan Bean was one of the uh, conspirators in that uh, in that venture. Of course, it wasn't a conspiracy. It was all uh, planned by NASA that they should land next to the Surveyor lander just to see what the effect of uh, those many months on the lunar surface was for a piece of hardware like that. Mm. Yeah, and uh, he he was quite young when he walked on the moon. I'm. Um 
just trying to work it out in my head, but he was uh, probably only in his late 30s, which for an astronaut of that era was quite young. Yeah, they were. Most of those guys were in their were in their thirties. That's that's right. Um, and you know, I I was just flicking through some of the um, some of the news reports of of the um, the, the, the sort of uh, the, the asteroids, not the asteroids, the astronauts, and where they are today. And you see all these photographs of young men in their spacesuits, you know, oh, yeah. full of energy and full of life, and their crew uh, cuts and their, their yeah, that's yeah. right, all ready to go. And and here they are. Uh, like we all do, uh, rather, rather more age, age, aged, I suppose is the word. <laughs> yes, so Alan, but Alan Bean, um, very interesting life because he flew, uh, he did fl- fly again, uh, if I remember rightly. He was, yes, he was on the uh, on the Skylab. Uh, so back in 1973. Um, which is kind of four years after his Apollo flight, he was the commander of the second uh, crewed flight to, to Skylab, the, the, the very first space station. Um, so yes, two, two really successful missions. And then um, eight years after that, in 1981, he retired from NASA and became an artist. And that I think is fairly unusual among the retired astronaut corps. I, I don't know that any, of the others became artists, but um, I might be wrong there. Uh, but he made actually a significant career as an artist, and he, he, you know, what he did was combine his love of space and his interest in space with his love of art, and uh, essentially has um, a, a very large portfolio of, of space-related um, of images that he's painted. That, yeah, pretty good too. It might have been a way of escaping. The, the the hyperbole of being an astronaut and being a pioneer in, in some of the, the great achievements of humanity because uh, for some, it was really stressful stuff. I yeah. mean, Buzz Aldrin went through a terrible, terrible time personally uh, after Apollo 11. He he really suffered. Thankfully, he came through it, but he still deals with it today and he's, he's certainly had issues with people making terrible accusations about uh, the, the moon landings being fake and he was a target of that. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have been an easy life coming back from such an extraordinary thing and then trying to get your feet back on the ground, literally. I, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, we I guess we've all seen um, some of the stories, as, as you've mentioned, of the stresses that, that uh, the astronauts went through. Um, one of the a, a little footnote to this story, um, Andrew, is that uh, as we stand now, uh, only four of the astronauts who walked on the moon are still alive, mm. uh, and they're they're Charlie Duke, uh, David Scott, uh, Harrison Schmidt, of course, the famous uh, astronaut from Apollo 17, uh, and of course, the most famous of all. Buzz Aldrin, yeah. still going strong. I still yeah. remember the day I met him. Um, he turned up uh, out at uh, an aerodrome not far from where I live now, and um, he was here for uh, a dedication to flight because they built a replica of the original Wright Flyer oh, yes. uh, out at uh, uh, Narromine Airport. And if anyone wants to look it up online, they can, they can see what they did. It's a beautiful replica. It actually flew that day. <laughs> and uh, Buzz was there to um, to witness it and to um, address the crowd. Thousands of people turned up to hear him speak, and he wore a tie yep. with uh, little moons on it. 
uh, and you know, he's, even all these years later, he still can seem obviously is very connected to to what he achieved and what he what he did um, in in the 1960s. So amazing man, and um, and you can say the same of all of them because uh, you know, they they talk about them having the right stuff, and they they certainly had to have that. And yeah, Alan, Alan Bean certainly did, and uh, yeah, uh, he lived uh, a very good life, and uh, he died at a ripe old age, eighty-six. That's not 86. a bad innings to use yeah. the Australian vernacular. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, so R.I.P. Alan Bean, another another milestone in in the history of space travel. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, Do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go. Space Nuts. And uh, now we're going to turn our attention to um, two things that you not normally put together, lunar eclipses and climate change, but apparently there's a lot to learn about climate change from a lunar eclipse. How so, Fred? It's because when you see an eclipse of the moon, uh, what's happening is the moon is passing through the Earth's shadow, uh, and uh, there's actually one coming up this year, which is one of the, you know, will, will be one of the deepest eclipses. By that, I mean the moon goes right through the middle of the Earth's shadow. So it's a long, a, a long eclipse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the moon is not completely dark. And the reason for that is that the Earth's atmosphere uh, basically scatters light uh, and scatters the light of the sun into the shadow of the Earth. And so when the moon is deep in the Earth's shadow, there's still that uh, scattered light there. And 
of course it is red it, uh, we all know that um, when, when you've got a total eclipse of the moon the moon turns into this blood red color yes and that's because the light is preferentially scattered in the shorter wavelengths to use the technical term that means blue light blue light scattered out and actually becomes the blue of the sky uh, the red light more or less continues although it's still scattered uh, and falls on the disk of the moon so you've got this uh, amazing red uh, colored moon it looks bizarre there was an eclipse earlier this year and i was up at siding spring and there was this strange red object in the sky it was really quite remarkable a bit spooky actually mm. you can understand why all kinds of mythology would spring up around those eclipses um so um the uh, just to put it another way and I, I always think this is a great way of thinking of it if you were standing on the moon on the earth uh, earth facing side of the moon when an eclipse like that was taking place uh, what you would see would be the the earth itself but it would be uh, basically a brilliant ring of light red light uh, which is the atmosphere showing up there would be you know darkness in the middle of the earth and this brilliant ring of red light around the edges of it and that's where the redness comes from and it would be quite spectacular it would be very very intense as witnessed by the fact that the moon reflects so much back back of it uh, to us here on on earth yeah so that's the background um but the interesting thing is what you can learn by looking at the actual color of this red illumination uh, because the scattering uh, of the red light it depends the extent of the scattering depends on how much dust and aerosol material there is in the earth's atmosphere oh okay and so so we're talking about how dirty we are at any given time exactly <laughs> if the atmosphere is dirty then you're going to get different sorts of colors and different scattering from if the atmosphere is clean right. <laughs> clear okay. well that makes sense it does. And what makes the atmosphere dirty? Well, in particular, it's actually volcanic eruptions. Um, the, you know, the, uh, the, the amount of material that is high in the atmosphere, uh, particularly dusty material, but aerosols as well, droplets of liquid, mm. that, that um, is dictated to a large extent by the amount of you know, volcanic material that has spread up into the atmosphere. Now, volcanoes are going off all the time in the Earth's atmosphere. So, uh, yeah, although this year seems to have been a particularly busy one in terms of volcanic yeah, that's activity. Right. We've had, not just uh, on Hawaii, but we've had um, volcanoes doing their stuff all around the Ring of Fire, all around the Pacific Rim. So yeah, this could be a really fascinating eclipse later this year. Uh, it could be, that's right. It could be interesting to see what it's like. Mm. Um, anyway, um, what the reason why this is in the news is that um, uh, at a recent conference, uh, an emeritus professor, Richard Keane, who's at the University of Colorado in the USA, he uh, basically prepared a paper. It's in the form of a poster. That's often the way we present things at these conferences as a poster paper. Uh, his poster is called Volcanic Aerosol Optical Depths During the Post-Pinatubo Era 1996 to 2018, which doesn't sound terribly exciting. But what he's saying uh, is that he studied eclipses uh, over the period uh, since, you know, 1996. We're talking about um, rather more than 20 years. Um, I think he's based in Maui. I certainly uh, observed from there a favorite place of both you and you and me, uh, mm. Andrew. Yes, indeed. Um, 
and he studied the uh, the intensity of the eclipse and the intensity of the colours. And what that lets him do is calculate what we um, in the trade call optical depth, which is the you know how far you can see through something. That's the way basically what it means. Uh, that the greater the optical depth, um, the, the the more transparent something is. Uh, so he's worked out what the optical depth of the atmosphere is, and demonstrates that since the Pinatubo um, eruption uh, 20 odd years ago, the atmosphere has got much more much cleaner. Mm. It, it's the, the you know as you'd expect, the dust eventually falls out of the atmosphere, uh, the, the, you know the, the the ash and the the gas that turns into aerosols, um, and um, falls out of the atmosphere, and so the atmosphere gradually improves. Uh, but what his um, corollary to this is, is the really interesting bit. Uh, and what he says is, compared to the murky decades of the uh, Pinatubo eruption and, and others that he was looking at, uh, the clear stratosphere since 1995 has allowed the intensity of sunlight reaching the ground to increase by about 0.6 watts per square meter, which is equivalent to a warming of one or two tenths of a degree Celsius, 0.1 to 0.2 degrees Celsius. Uh, in other words, he adds, over the past 40 years, the decrease of volcanic aerosols and the increase of greenhouse gases have contributed equally to the total warming, which is about a third of a degree observed in global satellite temperature records. Isn't so this amazing? is. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, little, you know, attribute of of, uh, of the of the warming that we're seeing. That you can attribute half of it to a clarity of the atmosphere, which we didn't know about before. Yeah, um, well, that's going to get a lot of people arguing then, isn't it? Because they'll say, "Ah, oh, look, you know, it's not all our fault." Some I think of it's, it's natural. The first in the works, exactly. Yeah. That kind, yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that the temperature is rising and, and we're putting a lot of extra carbon into yeah. the atmosphere. Uh, but uh, as you said, there's, a, there's an eclipse this year and it'll be interesting to see how the analysis works in that one, given that it's been quite active uh, volcanically on the planet uh, yeah. over the last uh, six months or so. Uh, and that continues as we speak. Um, but uh, yeah, when you when you look at the the photographs of um, of the the uh, eclipses, you know, 1992 to now, uh, you, can, you can certainly see a difference. Um, uh, 1990, that, that Pinatubo volcanic eruption, one single volcano yeah. made such a difference to the world, uh, and it was it was a huge explosion. Uh, I've seen footage of it and photographs, and it was one cataclysmic. Um, uh, event uh, in the local area incredible and there's been you know, a couple since then of course um, there's uh, the, the one in uh, Indonesia that yes, um, stopped right. all air traffic there for quite some time and um, yeah there's been a few others like that not to mention air you usually yeah that one the Icelandic yeah, volcano, Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> which stopped air traffic, including my flight back to Australia yes, <laughs> back yes. in 2010. But yes, that's right. But I think Pinatubo was, you know, a, an order of magnitude bigger than, than oh. these ones. Yeah, it's been the um, biggest one in, in decades, um, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, huge. So uh, anyway, that's all cleared itself up. Um, and, and of course, this all creates a layer, doesn't it? And um, and when it settles down and... and you know, in time, they can sort of find that eruption again in the archives, in the in the um, in, in the, in the earth, earthen records. 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's fascinating. Indeed, that's right. Mm. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll keep... When is that eclipse, by the way? Uh, 27th of July. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll I keep need to eye, check where it's visible, but, uh, yeah, 27th of July mm. this year. Love eclipses. Don't know why. It's just <laughs> so fascinating. Uh, you're listening yeah. to Space Nuts uh, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Uh, finally, Fred, we're going to uh, answer a question from our studio audience. And uh, this one uh, is has sort of come up uh, in regard to something we discussed recently, which is uh, the, the TESS mission. Uh, so I'll just read the question, and then by the time I've finished, we'll be starting next week's episode. <laughs> uh, this comes from Alex Simmons in uh, Bellingen in New South Wales. I very much enjoy listening to the show each week. Keep it up. I'd not heard the show before it became a podcast. Yeah, well, because it was on local radio, it wasn't very widespread. We had an audience of two dogs, a cat and a budgie. Uh, I have a a question about a a topic you covered uh, some weeks back, TESS, the planned exoplanet search mission. In the show, you mentioned the TESS spacecraft will sweep a large majority of the sky looking for exoplanets using the transit method and cover far more sky than the Kepler mission did. Given TESS is a two-year mission and the time spent collecting starlight data on any one segment of the sky is limited to about four weeks total. Presumably this means it can only confirm short-period exoplanets. By confirm, I mean the multiple observations of the same exoplanet transit. Is this correct? Uh, What would longer-period exoplanets, uh, or what about longer-period exoplanets, how do we find these? Uh, Or is TESS simply pointing out good candidates for other observation methods? I kind of figure longer period exoplanets are more likely not to be tidally locked and perhaps maybe better candidates for signs of life if in the habitable orbit zone. Many thanks, Alex. And now I need oxygen. (laughs) Alex, your um, question is right on the money. It's a great question. I know uh, (laughs) there's uh, several components to it. Um, but um, everything that Alex says is correct there, that, uh, you know, there are relatively limited amounts of time that TESS will be looking at individual stars. So just to, to backtrack slightly, Andrew, the, um, the, the idea of TESS is that it will uh, look at patches of sky uh, and monitor them for dips in the brightness of the stars within them. And it's going to look at millions of stars. It's a very big project compared with its predecessor, Kepler, which only looked at one particular chunk of sky. Uh, TESS is going to survey the whole sky. But exactly as Alex says, um, the, the, you know, the dips in, in the brightness of these stars, which reveal the presence of a planet passing in front of the star, um, you, when you've only got a limited amount of time, what you can't do is what you need to do to confirm that these planets are real, and that is to look at many transits of the same planet. So by that I mean if you if you watch the star for long enough, you'll see the planet pass in front of the star um, as it orbits around the star. For example, if you're doing this from a great distance and looking at the solar system and looking back at the Earth, you'd see the Earth transit across the sun, and then a year later it would do it again, and then a year after that it would do it again. So these are what we call long-period planets because they're planets like the Earth, which are relatively lengthy in their in their time span uh, around uh, the orbit. Uh, in fact, we regard that as normal. A year to us is a normal length of time. Sure. In many of the exoplanets that have been discovered, um, 
Many of them are, are around dwarf stars, much smaller stars than the sun. So they orbit closer to their parent star. And, and that means that the, the transits are more frequent. Um, like a that, strobe light. <laughs> well, not quite as frequent as that. Some of, them, some of them are a bit, yeah, a bit wild when you've got an orbital period of a day and a half or something like yeah. that. But, um, but so, so the point that, um, that, that Alex makes is, is very valid, that, uh, you know, if you've got sort of four weeks or so of total data on any one, uh, on any one bit of the sky, which is about right, uh, so I think it's 27 days or something, uh, with the exception, actually, just let me mention that near the ecliptic poles, which means the, 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 the direction at right angles to the Earth's orbit, the coverage is much more complete there. You've got um, a much longer periods of time because uh, this thing's scanning the sky in a, in, a, in a polar way. So it crosses the pole lots and lots of different times. But for, the, for a normal bit of sky, yes, it's roughly four weeks. Um, and so what you are going to rely on uh, to, to actually characterize these planets and work out what their orbits are you're going to have to rely on multiple observations, and by that I mean follow-up observations with different, uh, different ways of carrying it out. So what TESS will do is find the single transits. That's what it will be best at. And it will flag those, and it will do that very, very well. And then um, a battery of actually Earth-based telescopes, which are pretty capable of doing the following up, uh, the follow-up work, they will follow up on these so that we will know what the orbital period is of these individual planets. There will be some that tests can characterize straight away, the ones with, you know, periods of 10 days or 20 days or whatever. But for the longer period ones, it will rely on follow-up observations. And actually, the best follow-up observations include huge telescopes taking spectroscopic observations, that means uh, breaking the light up into its rainbow colors and looking for the velocity changes in the star which reveals the presence of a planet around it. That's the best way to characterize it. <clears throat> um, so uh, so the, uh, Alex's question, what about longer period exoplanets? How do we find those? Well, we do it by, by follow-up. Mm. Uh, and, and, and Alex actually says that, or his test simply pointing out good candidates for other observation methods. That's the bottom line. There will be some that it will be able to characterize, as I said, because of multiple transits, but most will be, uh, oh, here's a transit. Uh, we can recognize a transit, by the way, by the shape of what we call the light curve. It's the way the light dims. It has a very specific pattern to it. And so that tells you that you're not just seeing the star feeling like uh, it needs to give out a bit less light, you're actually seeing a transit. Um, his, his final question um, is, is right as well. I figure, kind of figure longer period exoplanets are more likely not to be tidally locked and perhaps maybe better candidates for signs of life. Uh, so what that means is if you've got, um, you know, a planet orbiting its parent star close in, it's very likely that one side of the planet will always face its parent star, a bit like Mercury does. Yeah. Um, and that tends to mean that one side of the planet is going to be very hot, the other side is going to be very cold. Uh, life might not take hold there, although some people have suggested that even in a planet like that, there will be a zone um, which is kind of on the, on the border between light and dark, what we call the terminator, uh, that division between the light and dark side of a planet, which is always going to be in the same place as far as the inhabitants are concerned. That might be a place where, where life could kick 
could kick off. Mm. Uh, but that's a bit speculative. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, great stuff. Um, uh, tests will discover longer period planets, but the the determination of the period will be with follow-up observations. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. I think they're still uh, going through the, the, the system checks and things of that sort before the spacecraft starts sending back data. It is already in orbit, um, but we'll see what's happening. It's a very exciting project. But the truth of the matter is it won't find everything. There are going to be um, gaps in the knowledge. We can't possibly find every planet uh, orbiting every star in all of the sky that it'll be watching. That we'd, you know, we'll, there'll be stuff left for later, is what I'm there, saying. There will. And, and, of course, you, you know, that's a very important point in this particular case, Andrew, because the only ones that TESS will find are stars that orbit their planets in a plane that actually intersects the Earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's got to be the right orientation. There's going to be many planetary systems where the, there's, 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 there's no transits at all because of the, the planetary systems tilted with respect to the line of sight to the Earth. So, uh, if, so if we were to try this from, uh, I don't know, Mars, would that make any difference at uh, all or would, he, would no. we have to go to another galaxy or another yeah. well it, actually it's probably to another star that's yeah. right to, to make a big difference yeah but but the statistics are still in your favor i think you still get something like 10 percent of all uh, you know of, of of all the planets around other stars even with that limitation that you can only see the ones that actually pass in front of it mm -hmm. um, of course the nearer the planet is to its parent star the more likely you are to see it and that's just because of the geometry. Yes. Um, you know, no, yeah. it would be really fascinating. Um, and uh, look, who knows how many planets it will detect, but it will probably be a lot. Yep. Uh, and uh, that will give us a lot of information. And it just adds more and more to the likelihood that there are going to be Goldilocks planets. There's going to be liquid water on some of these. And who knows what that means you know, down the track. Uh, we can do spectrum analysis and say, okay, well, there's a lot of junk in the sky. They've got a global warming problem. <laughs> um, we will. Yeah. We will. And, um, you know, the next generation of big telescopes is going to be pivotal in doing those observations. It's going to be very exciting. Indeed. All right. Uh, thank you for your question, Alex. I hope we uh, answered it adequately. I know I did. Uh, <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's it from us for this week. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Andrew. Um, so always a pleasure helping you answer the questions. Yes, <laughs> it is indeed. We'll see you next time. Uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends um, and uh, keep sending us uh, all your uh, photos and your information and, and, of course, your questions. We love those. And we'll see you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.